As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Alongside me is Matt Slater, the football news reporter at The Athletic. And each week we'll take you behind the curtain into the world of football business and other sports across the globe. Coming up on this pod, we'll talk to Paul Barber, CEO of the Premier League side Brighton and Hove Albion. And we'll also look back on England's failed attempt to host the 2018 World Cup and a chain of events that eventually led to the collapse of Set Blatter's FIFA empire. To read all the articles we discuss on today's podcast in full, simply head to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to subscribe for just £1 a month for 12 months access to The Athletic and you can cancel at any time. So theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman, you'll get The Athletic for £1 a month for 12 months and this offer only runs until the 4th of December and it is for new subscribers only. Well, let's talk to our first guest on this week's pod, Paul Barber, who is CEO and Deputy Chairman of Brighton and Hove Albion in the Premier League. It feels, Paul, we can either start with Brexit or we can start with COVID, which which kind of <laughs> sums up the world we're living in at the moment. I think we'll start with Brexit, but before I get an answer from you on it, Matt can just explain what has been announced this week as regards overseas players joining English clubs. Matt. Great, thanks very much. Yeah, uh, Brexit, yeah, wonderful. So the headlines are, we are leaving the European Union. Sorry to break that to everybody. Uh, it, it finally happens. Uh, and as of January the 1st, that's going to change things for British football clubs. So the main change is they will not be allowed to buy overseas players under the age of 18. And that really is in line with FIFA's rules. Uh, uh, but for the last however many years... There's been an exemption within the European Union. You could do it for players aged between 16 and 18. Now, that, of course, we're leaving the European Union, so that's the key thing. We are now unable to buy players from the European Union who are aged between 16 and 18. There's also going to be restrictions on the number of under 21 overseas players you can buy from anywhere. So starting with the January window, clubs will only be able to buy three, and then that will be six in a calendar year starting from next next summer. So those are the sort of kind of key bits. The detail is really all around how you get a work permit, how you get what is known as a governing body endorsement, how you get the FA to say to the Home Office, 
this person here is a high quality person that we need because they're really good and here's our criteria and this is where all the detail is now there was a big debate really for the last few years about what Brexit would mean and on the one side to put it really really simply you had the FA desperately trying to sort of help the national team boost domestic talent by trying to raise the bar, by trying to use Brexit as an opportunity to increase playing time for young English qualified players. Likewise, Scottish, Welsh, etc, etc. And you had a Premier League on the other side, and I'm being sort of kind of simplistic here, thinking, no, 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 we want to be able to continue to buy the best regardless of their passport. Do not disadvantage us compared to Bayern, Barca, etc, etc. So the criteria is very, very detailed. Basically, it's a points-based system. Uh, it seems like a pretty good compromise to me. If you come from a, if you come with a high transfer fee from a good club and you've been playing for that club, you're going to get in. If you play, if you played 90% of a top 10 teams, international teams, internationals over the last two years, you get an automatic pass. You are a starter for a top club. So so that's where the, the debate is and where a lot of the compromise has been. But I, I, it does look to me like a pretty fair solution. Is it going to change a lot for you then, Paul, and how you operate the club? For us, not so much. I think overall, it's a decent compromise. It's it's not perhaps as generous as we had hoped, but it's not as bad as we feared. So you know, we're in that happy medium position. I mean, we have to strike a balance between the, the amount of uh, money that that we're investing in our own academy um, to develop young players, which of course is a is a reason why we wouldn't go out and buy young players. But at the same time, we've also supplemented that academy with with top quality young talent from around the world, which in turn helps to develop the young talent that we're bringing in from from our own country. So that one side of the story, and then of course the other side of the story is helping the national team to progress by making sure that pathways aren't blocked for the best of English talent that is coming through the system and it's that happy medium that balancing act that the FA and the Premier League have been working to try and maintain. There were two effects that in the reading I did on this yesterday which which was brief because of all the other things going on but the two effects that I seem to glean from it is that it might encourage more of the bigger clubs to look for feeder clubs to help them globally with with some of the the younger players and secondly that it will put a higher premium on young english players are both of those correct yeah they are and and that's obviously a big worry because what you don't want to see is sort of the bigger richer clubs stockpiling the best young english talent because that won't actually get the minutes on the pitch that will just create a logjam in the system that will uh, actually have the opposite effect of what the FA wants, which is to have young English players playing minutes and being prepared to play at the highest possible level. So again, it's something that uh, for the first sort of 12 months, six months initially, you know, we'll be monitoring and reviewing and, and looking at carefully. And I think we've got an agreement in place that it will be reviewed after uh, after the, the first sort of 12 months so that we can actually then look at it again and see how it's working in practice. That was actually going to be my final point on this, whether the flexibility has been built into this because because if it, if, if you know, aspect X doesn't work and could be improved by aspect Y, whether how, how much this is set in stone, but 12 months and you can review it. I think the initial review will be after six and, and then again, it will be tweaked at that point and then we'll see where we go. But I think in fairness to the FA and Premier League, this has been debated over, over quite some months now. It's hugely complex. It's not easy to solve. Dan Ashworth, our own technical director, of course had a former role as the FA's te- technical director, has been on the working party to manage through this process. And I think Dan would say that he's reasonably satisfied with where we've got to because it does balance the interests of clubs with the interests of the national team. Paul, just to, just to pick up on, on a question that, that Mark asked that, that was 
it's been in my mind for quite some time because I'm hearing it all the time now from 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 people I speak to about the buying and selling of clubs. And that is this idea of the multi-club model, with City Football Group being the obvious example, uh, having these foreign outposts. And it, and it does almost look like it's a great hedge against Brexit. So we've seen this year almost quietly. You know, it hasn't been like the big fanfare for the for the purchases of clubs in, in China, India and New York. Manchester City have bought clubs in, in, in France and Belgium, in Troyes and uh, Lommel. And I saw a, a story in the Boston Globe, which of course is owned by John W. Henry, Liverpool's, Liverpool's main boss, that they, the Fenway Sports Group, are now thinking of sort of kind of continental outposts. Do you, do you, do you see more of this? Do you see this as a good way around this, this, this issue? Well, it's certainly another. It's, a, it's another way in which to to, to manage the process. We own a, a club through our, our chairman in in Belgium as well, um, and that's something we've now had for two years. It, it's not. Um, it's not necessarily going to rapidly advance, you know, the development of, of players into our club or, or vice versa. But it does actually give us a, a, another way of looking at, at foreign talent. It does give us another way of developing our own talent because we, we can loan out and move them into a league that is you know, going to give them a cultural uh, experience as well as a footballing experience. So I, I suspect it will happen more and more. Leicester City have, uh, are involved as well, Manchester City, as you've said. So there are more and more clubs around around the UK, around England that are, that are looking at investment in overseas clubs as well if i move it on to covid then and and maybe we'll do this quite uh, quickly as regards fans and and stadia obviously you had your your test event where are you at now with fans what tier are, are you in I've, I've, i actually don't know are you in three two <laughs> we're in, no we're in tier, we're in tier two fortunately so right, okay. the irony of that is that we'll, we'll we'll be bringing fans back on monday but less than we brought back for the test event so <laughs> it's slightly ironic but um but anyway it's a it's a start and we're looking forward to uh we're looking forward to moving on from there will you lose money we will i think mark it's an investment in gaining confidence both with the fans themselves some of whom are still quite nervous to come back which we totally understand but i think as importantly or more importantly in some ways with the government and the local authorities to show that we can, uh, not just as a single club as we did for the test event, bring back fans safely, but across the country as the league sort of rolls out that we can stage multiple events at the same time and still keep people safe. And that's almost the next proof point I think the government needs in order to hopefully move us up to, to higher numbers and therefore viability of bringing fans back at some point sooner rather than later, because it's not sustainable at 2,000. It's not even sustainable for the bigger clubs at 4,000 fans, but it's an important start. Paul, can you shed any light on just, just one? This, I mean, I, I completely hear what you're saying and, and others are saying the same about the numbers, but the confusing, confusing situation around drink, where and when yeah. will <laughs> fans be able to you know, quench their thirst? At the Amex. We're waiting for, for clarification on that, literally, as we speak. We understand that we are going to be given clearance to serve alcohol in our hospitality areas where typically people are eating and sitting down, which is, I think, you know, reasonable and, and that, that seems to make sense. The confusion is over the concourses where, of course, typically people are not sitting and they're not having a substantial meal unless you could class our <laughs> pies as substantial, which they are. But, <laughs> but typically... 
typically we're looking at a hot dog or a pie in one hand and a, and a pint in the other and people standing. And of course, the, the concern in that situation is that people are going to stand in groups. Social distancing is going to be very difficult to maintain. And then we're into all of the issues that we know about that we, we that exist in society everywhere at the moment. So we're waiting for some clarification. Could you scatter some beanbags? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the interesting thing is with only 2,000 people um, in the stadium, I'm not too worried, frankly, about... Um, gathering on, on concourses because I think we, we you know we've got wide concourses and good staff and sensible supporters and people will will use their their common sense and, and maintain their distance but of course the, the the simplest way through this would be to enable people to take their drink through to their seat because the seats are socially distanced people are sitting a minimum of three seats apart from each other every other row um, is, is in a checkerboard style so people could take their drink and their pie, sit down. They would be socially distanced. They would be sitting down. They would be eating as well as drinking. And that would be the ideal scenario. But that, does that set the big precedent? It does. And that's the, that's the dilemma, I think, that, that the government have got, is that if they relax the law on drinking in view of the pitch, then you know, at what point do you have to reinstate that law or, or do you just simply scrap it altogether? And you know, there are lots of pros and cons both ways. But the irony is that we're in this situation where the simplest way to maintain social distancing and allow people to have a beer and a pie at the same time will be allowed them to take it to their seats but we'll see where that gets to in the next few days there are some grounds that i've been to in my many years paul where i, I wouldn't even class the pie as food let alone sub, <laughs> let alone substantial not 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 a brighton i hasten to add but it may, <laughs> not quite sure what i have put in my mouth on some occasions anyhow um just on um it when you've been in your premier league meetings is there an acceptance that um this can't be fair at the moment. I mean, there are murmurings that it isn't fair, but my view, certainly working in a variety of sports that have been through similar processes, is that this unique situation means that you just have to get on with it, whether it's fair or not. I would say it's not ideal, and, and I've got a lot of sympathy for those clubs that, that are in Tier 3 and can't have fans back at the moment. It's certainly not ideal, and I, I personally would prefer everyone to be you know, at, at the same point at the same time, but I think in terms of where we are, we, we have got to bring fans back sooner rather than later, not just to help ourselves, but also particularly to help those lower down in the pyramid who rely on match their income even more than we do. So we've got to start somewhere. I think we would accept as a club that if we move into tier three, which is something, of course, that could happen and we don't have uh, or we're not permitted to have fans, other clubs could have fans. We would accept that as being just a, sim a part of the process we've got to go through and simply something we have to accept. So, you know, we're in the fortunate position at the moment where we're in Tier 2 and we can have fans. It, it, it's possible we could go to Tier 1 and have more fans, but it's also possible we could go to Tier 3 and have no fans. And even in that scenario, we would still say, get on with it, let other clubs have fans back. We'll, we'll just have to sort of, you know, get on with it for this period of time to allow the business to restart. I mean, it is ironic, you know, in a typical... Um, match day here at the Amex, we would sell 6,000 pies. We, we, would, we would normally sell three times the number of pies we're going to have supporters in. So yeah. um, it, it's, it's quite bizarre. But, but you know, we've, we've gone so many months now without fans. And, and I remember back to the test event we had in August and Frank Lampard saying afterwards that even though there were 2,500 Brighton fans in for that test event, his players were energised by having any crowd in the stadium. Yeah. They actually enjoyed just having the noise of a crowd in the stadium. And even though they weren't cheering for Chelsea, it was beneficial as well to them. So hopefully that will be the same across the league. And and just to go on to the, to the, the meetings that, that the Premier League has, what, what I think has been quite interesting in the whole debate that actually happened from your ground at, uh, on, on Saturday with Jurgen Klopp and his Des Kelly interview 
is how the different interests, how the different feelings, different opinions on any one subject are discussed at a Premier League meeting. And therefore, when you go into one of those with other chief execs and chairmen, do you go armed with what your manager feels on a certain subject? And do all clubs do that? Or, or is it done very much at a, a chief exec chairman level? I can't speak for, for every club on, on this, Mark, but I can certainly say with our club, we would speak to Graham Potter about some of the key sure. issues. We would certainly get his views. Obviously, we're lucky that we've got a technical director in Dan Ashworth as well. We'd get yeah. Dan's views. Tony and I, Tony Bloom and I would always go into those meetings armed with what our manager and our technical director uh, opinions are. I mean, the other thing I would say is that everybody goes into those meetings with, with what I would call sort of dual aims. The first aim is is obviously to protect your own interests. So you know, the, the notion that there's no self-interest at the top or, or, you know, or in the middle or at the bottom is just, it, just a nonsense. You know, we, we're all self-interested. Yes, it's absolutely. a competition. Of course we are. <laughs> um, but we also hopefully all have a hat on that is about the, the good of the league and, and the good of the, the game and the good of the sport as a whole. So we, we try, certainly we do, uh, I do, whenever we, we speak to try and sort of present both points of view. We'll, we'll certainly put our club's views and our club's interests first because – we're in a competition, we would have to do that. But we've also got responsibility, not just to the rest of uh, our league, but also to the to the sport as a whole. And so we try and be balanced in our opinions as well. So, you know, I would hope that every club went in with a similar attitude. And I, I never get too upset when, you know, the top six clubs have a particular different point of view to maybe the bottom six clubs, because that's me uh, sort of seeing their self-interest come through as much as they would see mine come through. And there's nothing wrong in that. You know, we're in a competition and we're in it to win it in our own respective ways. And, and our own ambitions will be different depending on where we sit in the league. But nonetheless, we've got our own ambitions and, and we try and play those out. It would help, I suppose, if self-interest was more open, wouldn't it? I think so. I mean, I, I remember getting criticised um, during the, the lockdown, the first yeah. lockdown period for talking about neutral venues and, and opposing them. But and, and, and people saying, well, you're self-interested, you're in the relegation zone. Well, yeah. yes, of course I'm self-interested. Yes. <laughs> and of course I don't want to be relegated. So, you know, why why would I want to concede a point that, that, that I felt, we felt, was going to disadvantage our club in what is a competition? It doesn't make sense. So, yes, you know, if I'm, if I'm accused of self-interest in that situation, guilty as charged. But then I would expect every other... Uh, one of the Premier League chief executives or chairman to, to be equally self-interested in that situation. So it, it is what it is. And, and um, you know, I, I think the debates in, in Premier League meetings are, are healthy. They are not at all flimsy in, or, you know, not robust in their in their nature. You know, very often we have quite challenging debates on every subject and we take every every person's point of view. We take it seriously. We listen and we try and show respect to each other at all times. Just on self-interest, Paul, what, what is Brighton's position on five subs? We would prefer to have five subs. And again, this this is why sometimes I think in the media it's characterised as a top six versus the rest yeah. on this debate. It isn't. We actually quite like uh, the tactical flexibility that five substitutes provides, as well as the, the player health benefits. We've got a coach that is not averse to changing systems within matches, and therefore five substitutes helps that. So right from the start, you know, we have voted in favour, and of course, you know, player welfare, player health is is also you know uppermost in our minds as well because we have got a condensed fixture set schedule. We've got six games in 23 days in December. You know, that's without us playing in Europe. That's without us playing any cup matches at that time. So it is a burden on the players, and and in a season that is already condensed, you know, that burden is is obviously increased. But as I say, it's not just the top six versus the rest debate 
But once again, other clubs got different opinions and we respect that because they're entitled to their opinions as well. You've given us a lot of time, so uh, I don't want to keep you for very much longer. I just want to ask one final question, which I, I, at the end of it, we could probably debate for a, about an hour and a half, probably. But <laughs> given your experience in the... Yeah, yeah. Given your experience in the game and where you've worked in the past and what, and what you've seen and the situations that we're in at the moment, are we heading towards a reset of the domestic game? Part of me says, absolutely, we, 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 we must be. Because, you know, if we look at our club of lo- alone, we've lost tens of millions more pounds in the last 12 months than we expected to lose. So by definition, you know, that's got to be paid for by someone. That's Tony Bloom, our owner, that's got to foot, foot that bill. And you've got to think that's going to impact on our ability to, to trade in January or, or, or in the summer. And we're not the only club that's been hit by a huge bill, bigger than we, far bigger than we expected. So by the law of averages, by the law of sort of common sense, you'd have thought that there would be some kind of reset at the top level. And if there's a reset at the top level, then there's going to be certainly a reset all the way through the English football pyramid and across Europe. Because, you know, clubs across Europe have been hit in Italy and Spain in Germany and France, just as uh, as hard as, as the UK. Um, so every bone in my body says some kind of reset is most likely. But equally, we've been saying that for, what, 30 years since the Premier League started. You know, this can't go on. We can't keep spending at this level. We can't keep topping transfer fees up and wages up and agents fees up. But every year we seem to do it in some way, shape or form. So, you know, my, my sense, though, Mark, is that the best players will always attract the highest wages and the biggest clubs will always find a way to afford the best players because that's what you know the game thrives on. Um, how that then affects the rest of us you know, remains to be seen. But I suspect there will be some kind of reset. I couldn't predict what, what it would be. It may be lower transfer volumes, i.e. fewer deals being done, or it may be that the player wages do stabilise a little bit or come down a little bit. Um, but it really is very hard to tell at the moment. Parachute payments, Paul? Parachute payments are so important for for the clubs that are that are in the Premier League. It's it's a real dilemma because if if you get to the Premier League as we did four seasons ago, you've got two choices. You can you can either invest to stay in the Premier League, and you really do need to do that. But in order to do that, you're typically committing to contracts of two, three, four years for players because otherwise they just won't come to you. If you commit to those contracts at two, three, four years. Uh, and then you get relegated in that first year, the parachute payment is absolutely vital in order for you to pay out those contracts. Otherwise, you're going to be in very, very severe financial trouble. The alternative strategy is not to invest, as some clubs over the last three, four, five years have done, and then your risk of going straight back down is is even greater. And the one thing I've learned you know, since getting to the Premier League is, is it's very, very, very difficult to stay in the Premier League but trust me, it's even harder to get into the Premier League. So the one thing that you really don't want to do once you, you get to this level is, is to fall back down to the Championship because getting out of the Championship is so difficult. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much, Paul. I really appreciate it. Thank you. No problem, Take guys. Care. Good to speak to you. Cheers. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So ladies and gentlemen, the result of the 2018 FIFA World Cup, 2018 FIFA World Cup, ladies and gentlemen, will be organized in Russia. Now, the former sports minister, Sir Hugh Robertson, has told The Athletic that England should never bid for a men's football World Cup again until it is certain that FIFA has cleaned up its act. Matt, you uh, have been talking to Robertson and a whole load of voices, actually, for a long read on The Athletic that uh, looks at England's failed bid for the 2018 World Cup. Uh, you've you've also spoken to Seth Blatter. But that statement by Robertson, is he talking about FIFA now in its current guise? No, to be fair, I think he's talking about the FIFA that he experienced. He does sort of qualify that statement a little later and he's kind of like final thoughts. I mean, just explain who Hugh Robertson, who Hugh Robertson is. He was um, opposition sports minister when under the under the sort of tail end of, the, of New Labour's government, he became sports minister and Olympic minister in 2010. So those roles very, very well for a few years. Uh, and during that time, of course, oversaw, oversaw the successful staging of London 2012 helped our various national governing bodies bid for dozens of world championships, world cups, European events, you name it. Um, you know, Britain has been very successful at staging major events with one very, very notable exception. And it is, it's, it's something that he said still scars him to this day, the, the bidding process for the 2018 World Cup. And he was involved, very involved towards the end in that process. Political support is always very, very significant, very important for any kind of bidding contest, particularly for World Cups and Olympics. You must have government support. And we had it, but it, it wasn't enough. It wasn't nearly enough. And he's still annoyed about that experience. I think what he's saying, though, is FIFA has clearly learned from that. And we'll, we'll get into that, what it learned and why it had to learn stuff. And it does now have a different process. So the main one being that once upon a time, the decisions on where to host the World Cup were decided by the executive committee. Effectively, two dozen blokes, old blokes. It is now a decision made by the entire Congress, which is you know the 200 plus national associations that are members of FIFA. So you have a much bigger electorate and therefore it is deemed fair. We've had one election for a World Cup since that under the new rules. And it was it was the one that chose the, the hosts for the 2026 tournament, which is USA, Mexico and Canada. They beat Morocco. They got two thirds of the vote. It wasn't a surprise. And, you know, I think everyone is was pretty happy with how that process went. It, 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 it was a process. There were criteria and there were no real complaints afterwards. Well, the Athletics Oli Kay has worked with Matt uh, on this piece. I mean, there are internal tensions, celebrity endorsements, all the political power struggles you would expect as well. You were in Zurich for the announcement, Ollie. What was that like? It was very much as somebody described in the, in the piece, speaking anonymously, they said it was it was like being in a room with all the baddies from James Bond. <laughs> you could see all these, figures, all these figures who, at the start of that process, had been sort of, you know, some of them had sort of slightly questionable reputations. And, and yet over the, over the sort of three or four years leading up, I think there've been so many sort of exposés and allegations made, and you saw all of those people in a different—well, not all of them, but uh, a great majority of them—in a different light. And 
you could just see them. And it, it did feel, I don't want to say evil, but it did feel villainous. Um, <laughs> and somebody who um, had read the piece, somebody else who was there, a journalist who was there, texted me this morning, said it wasn't like being in a room with all the baddies from James Bond. And he said it was like being in the, walking into the bar in Star Wars with Jabba the Hutt there. <laughs> I think it just felt like, it felt hostile. And I'm not saying it was hostile to the journalists or hostile to the English, but it just felt like a hostile atmosphere. It felt very entitled and it felt dripping with wealth and entitlement, dripping with people on a power trip. You know, Prince William and David Cameron and, and David Beckham sort of being sent along as sort of England's A-list, um, A-list uh, sort of schmoozers and celebrities. And uh, they were there the, the night before at the Barrow Lack Hotel in, in Zurich, beautiful hotel. And they were trying to sort of do it charm offensive on, on on all of these people and prince williams sort of joking that he was having to well i think david cameron joked with prince william that he was going to have to invite all of these guys to his wedding to um <laughs> to get their vote and prince william joked in response well i think i'm actually gonna have to ask them to marry me <laughs> the interesting thing is is that i mean you know they were england was sending these guys out in a sort of style presentation or charm over substance thing they felt they had the substance they felt they were la putting layer and layer of charm and flattery on top of this and as various people involved in the bid told matt and me and, and and adam crafton and others it just wasn't enough because they you know there was another dimension to all of this which um which has come out subsequently and it, you know having the best technical bid didn't matter flattering people saying you know oh um come, come to the fa cup final we'll give you the vip treatment that didn't matter. I think they were looking. Some of these guys were looking for a lot more than flattery. And eventually, with the way the World Cups were awarded, Russia got 2018, Qatar got 2022. This whole process was the downfall of Blatter in the end. No, Matt. It was. Yeah, it was the beginning of the end for for that sort of old cronyism. For that, I mean, the the thing about the thing about. FIFA thing about Blatter, of course, is we try and portray these things in a very sort of black and white terms, and 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 often it's not that way. It's grey, very grey, and and as it is with FIFA, really, because yes, FIFA and people at and around FIFA were corrupt, some of them, quite a lot of them actually, but a lot of the issues were just in the confederations, in in the sort of in in the makeup of FIFA, the the the, the gatherings. The actual sort of institution, the kind of group of people that work in HQ, I mean, they are—they were diligent then, they're diligent now, they are well-intentioned. You know, if we just think about what they, what they wanted, what Blatter himself wanted, he wanted a Russian World Cup because they hadn't been to Eastern Europe before. He thought it would be good for the development of the game. He's always, like so many of these leaders of, of international federations, got one eye on a Nobel Peace Prize. He was thinking, all right, we'll do Russia, then we'll do the USA. Hand of peace, I'll get to look like a man of history. He didn't get the second half of what he wanted because he got Qatar. And he, you know, to this day, he's annoyed about that because he, it was a big shock and it wasn't, it wasn't his plan. But the sort of actual, what motivated Blatter when you talk to people about him is, is he wanted to run the show. He wasn't necessarily interested in sort of old-fashioned graft and corruption there was a lot of that going on that was that was the others now did he did he do enough to stop it no did he did he care not clearly not enough did it suit him that others had their hand in the till and as long as he stayed in charge yes probably was it a transparent and fair process that he ran for this world cup or any of the others under his watch 
No, not really. Have things got better? Yes. There are so many mm. shades to it, so many nuances to it. You know, when I talked to him last week, I sort of think, you know, should I go in here and rough this guy up? Well, but what's the point? You know, <laughs> he, he's, well, one, he's an 84-year-old man. And, and two, he's, he's, he's had his downfall and he's, he's never going to change. He just doesn't see things this way. He sees that process as, look, guys, we heard you. You were invited to bid. You did a great bid. Thanks very much for coming. You didn't get very many votes. In fact, you did terribly. We went for Russia. Russia had a great World Cup. What's the problem? And a lot of this process, as as Matt says, Ollie, it is grey rather than black and white. I mean, I, I can remember covering this at the time and, and the whole Jack Warner, who president of CONCACAF, and his wife being given a gift from the England bid team and but at the same time questioning people and going well what's the difference between buying someone a, a handbag wasn't it I think or something like that buy, buy someone a handbag or agreeing to a to a friendly I mean this is this is the point with a lot of these bids there are there are are there differing levels of gifts stroke bribes if you, if some people might want to say it like that and that's where there is another gray area that level of exchanging of favors england playing an international match in in trinidad i'm sure if you look at where england have played sort of slightly off the beaten track friendly matches over the years they've played in, in south africa at one point they played in trinidad in 2008 there was often a sort of wider political or sort of development or diplomatic kind of arrangement to some of those friendlies and, and undoubtedly they played they, they agreed to play that 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 friendly game in trinidad because it was one of the very first demands that that jack warner made of them uh, when 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 they started trying to woo him it was going to, it was going to be the centenary of the Trinidad and Tobago FA. Uh, I was there at that match, and it, it was, you know, absolutely blatantly, clearly, obviously, a, a, you know, a, something that was designed to get Jack Warner's vote. I wonder whether, I mean, is there a problem with that? I don't know. I mean, if you play, if you go round all, if England had gone round and, and played thirteen friendlies in in thirteen of these different countries and Guatemala and and, and wherever and, and and got and Thailand and got the vote, would that have been dishonourable? I, I don't see that as being on a par with some of the allegations that were eventually made about certain bids. The fascinating thing is that, is that England did end up getting sort of uh, you know, embarrassed, certainly, and, and reprimanded for their for the way they behaved in, in, in the bid. I mean, England can say they were squeaky clean, but they tried to play the game. They did the stuff with the, the Mulberry handbags, agreeing to play friendly matches. And they also entertained a, um, a request from Jack Warner to... Um, get a, a family friend of his some work experience. I think he work experience at, I can't remember if it was the FA or at Wembley or, or something like that. And it was, so the FA were doing all of these things. One one thing they didn't do, incidentally, was that there was a chap called Nicholas Leoz who was um, <laughs> on the um, executive committee. And he, they were trying to get him to come along to the um, 2010 FA Cup final as a VIP. And the, 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 the response they got from him was, well, you know, why, why should he go along just to, just to, to watch the game. I mean, maybe if you name the FA Cup, but name the trophy after him, or you know, for example, the trophy, maybe. So, yeah. you know, there are some of us who cringe when we see the you know the Emirates ribbons on on the, the the beautiful old FA Cup trophy. But you know, I think the idea of having Nicholas Leoz's name and probably face um, engraved <laughs> on it would have been another matter. But a lot of these a lot of these requests they they were very dismissive of. One, one of the other one of the guys asked for an honorary knighthood. 
And so there was clearly a line that... One of them asked for the Falklands back. Oh, yeah, yeah well, yeah. I, I don't think um, <laughs> yeah. even in desperation um, that, that they were willing to entertain that one. But it's, um, you know, there was clearly a line that, you know, each bid probably had, saw the line as being in a different place. It, was, it wasn't, uh, you know, as Matt says, it wasn't a black and white thing. We were the good guys, others were the bad guys. I think each bid probably saw, uh, had a different threshold of how far they were willing to go and how far they were willing to bend over to get this bend, at least. Mm. <laughs> These guys vote. And, yeah. Um, well, I think yeah. that, was the, that was the insult to the injury, though, wasn't it? Because we, we spent 21 million quid on this bid. We threw everything at it. Prince William, David Beckham, the PM... Uh, David Cameron. We we really went for it, and we and we and we you know ticked a lot of the boxes. The the economic impact assessment was the best. Russia's was the weakest for for 2018. Um, the technical stuff, our stadiums, our infrastructure, absolutely brilliant. Everything everything that FIFA kind of sort of said, you know, you got to do this stuff, all right? Because if you don't do it very well, you'll lose. We did it brilliantly. Unfortunately, the decisions have been made. Whatever, all right? But. But I think the thing that kind of still rankles to anyone that was involved in the bid, that really kind of poured everything into it, is that when the the uh, the brown staff hit the fan and it, and FIFA were then sort of obliged to to, to investigate what happened, <laughs> we cooperated with the investigation and got slammed for these sort of issues where you could say, well, look, yeah, we 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 definitely perhaps you know kind of flirted with the line there a little bit and. You know the 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 job help helping you know Chuck Warner Jack Warner you know with the, with his sort of family work experience issues and I mean none, none of that none of that reads well none of that reads well now this man is is fighting extradition to the United States um, for for massive fraud and corruption so that doesn't just doesn't look good but you know it's we 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 were sort of guilty of I think of, of fairly minor transgressions. Um, and other bids just didn't cooperate with the official FIFA investigation and therefore don't get criticised. So it was sort of like, you know, kind of being hit again. It's like, well, you, you lost badly. Oh, and then you cooperated with the investigation and admitted the sort of naughty things you did. So, yes, we're now going to officially criticise you as well. I think that... That, that just, that, that, I think that hurt. So what's changed for them? I know the voting process has changed, as you've said, Matt, but if they went for the 2030 World Cup, what really would have changed? Well, I mean, well, so just in terms of the process, so I think going to the, the, the wider electorate, you know, is, is deemed to be a good move. It's gone to a bit more of a sort of an electorate where you just have more people. Now, a cynic could say that's, you know, does that mean what? It's just harder to bribe everybody because there's more of them. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to make that point seriously. Uh, I think people still do vote in geopolitical blocks. Yeah. Um, so you are really sort of just instead of it doesn't it's not really sort of two hundred individuals you are really sort of dealing with kind of like half a dozen voting blocks, and 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 that is how twenty thirty will play out. You know, this pan British bid that that is being discussed has been discussed for a long time will not happen. And 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 um, I think this is perhaps a a more central fundamental point to make unless you have total backing from your confederation, which means Europe. So unless Europe's 55 votes are going to get behind a pan-British bid for 2030. There's no point doing it because you, you can't split the European vote. And unfortunately, Spain and Portugal are thinking about a bid as well. Now, the other the other things that have changed and that FIFA are very keen to talk about is all that stuff that we did really, really well in 2010 
Now it's supposed to matter more. So the technical assessment is supposed to matter more. The economic assessment is supposed to matter more. It, now, whether it does or not, we don't know, because we've only got the evidence of one election. And in that election, it did matter. So just to give you an example, it was Morocco, as I said, versus this united bid from uh, US, Mexico and Canada. And look, what it really came down to was the certainty of a massive financial success for FIFA, 11 billion US dollars in revenue, which basically funds everything FIFA does for four years, these World Cups, these Men World Cups. Everything else is, is, is almost loss-making. It's the Men's World Cup that funds everything. So 11 billion pretty much on the table from North America, which you can kind of believe in, given the size of their stadiums, their ability to sort of sell tickets, the hospitality, the TV contracts, the merchandising, everything, versus Morocco's slightly speculative, mm, we might be able to make you a 5 billion profit. So 11 billion versus 5 billion. It was a simple decision. Now, what happens after that? Who knows? Boris Johnson comes up to both of you then and says... Do uh, do we go for it? Do I support a 2013 pan-UK 2013 pan bid? Do you say yes or no, given your experiences, Ollie? One thing somebody said to me, and it, it probably wasn't for this piece really, but it, you know, that is that if China won that World Cup, China will almost certainly get it. And, and if China were able to give the, um, the, insur the, the assurances, taking everything else out of it, you know, would I love to see the World Cup in England? Yes, absolutely I would. In the same way that I could see how it was important for the game, for the growth of the game, to take the World Cup to America in, in 1994. And although I don't think it lived up to any of the sort of promise, legacy promises, I think it was an important move to take it to Africa in 2010. I think, they, I think they, the FIFA weren't interested enough in the, the sort of long-term legacy stuff, but that was, that was an important development. Yeah, I'd agree with a lot of that. I think the point about China is really interesting because it just goes to show that that FIFA will always think geopolitically, will always think about growing the game. And I've got no problem with that. If if what's a world governing body for, if it's not thinking about development, not thinking about democratizing the sport. China is, as we know, you know, the emerging superpower. It is already the second largest economy in the world. And football is not the number one sport there. So how can I do that? And we know that the 2008 Olympics were very, very, very significant in terms of China's sort of recent history. It's sort of coming out on the world stage. So very, very attractive for FIFA, will always be attractive. The interesting thing about China is they won't want to do it and fail. So they, their, their equation is around looking at their team and thinking, well, is 2032 soon for us, given where we're at with the China Super League and just, you know, our development as a sort of footballing nation, which, you know, is not very good at the moment at all. So there is a window of opportunity, 2030, because if you wait to 2034, well, you know, China could well be ready then. You know, when 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 is, you know, our chance? I, I'm with Robertson, really. You know, I, I think if we can have faith in the system, with just that caveat I mentioned before about European support. So, you know, what are Spain and Portugal going to do? We cannot split the European vote. If we have backing, and I think a pan-UK-Irish bid is a really, really sort of solid foundation for a bid. Let's go for it. If not, let's save save the money, the aggravation, the headlines and watch it on telly or better still go. Matt, uh, as ever, good stuff. Ollie, thanks for joining us on this one. Uh, that's it. Don't forget, until December the 4th, you can get yourself a subscription to The Athletic for just £1 a month for 12 months and you can cancel that 
at any time. So just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman and the offer is for new subscribers only. So you get every article. You also get the podcast ad-free if you are a subscriber. £1 a month for 12 months. It's available until December the 4th. Theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. I'm back with David on Tuesday and then another Business of Sport podcast with Matt will drop on this feed on Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thank you.